And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. So today we are turning our attention to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And so uh, thank you so much, Rick, for reading the passage. Isaiah 6, if you are familiar with a lot of, uh, if you read a lot of theologians' writings or listen to a lot of sermons, you're probably very familiar with R.C. Sproul on Isaiah 6. In fact, you can probably say he spent his entire life preaching this passage and indeed on the, uh, uh, his funeral, uh, the passage that was preached was Isaiah 6, specifically talking about the glory of God and seeing how uh, we come up to God's glory and indeed showing that we are sinful humanity. But looking at this passage, we also see the call of a prophet. So Isaiah, one of the last prophets in Israel before Israel was taken away captive by the Assyrian Empire, Isaiah was called at a very tumultuous time. In fact, Isaiah didn't just speak to one nation, he spoke to two. And while on paper they were two separate nations, they had very similar personalities. So northern Israel, technically as their own nation, had never worshipped Yahweh God officially. So when, if you remember back to uh, David's grandson Rehoboam, when Rehoboam became king, Rehoboam was very, uh, what's a good word for it? He's like me, very prideful, uh, very pretentious. And the people came to him and said, hey, we would like for you not to charge us as many taxes. And he went, oh, not only am I going to charge taxes, I'm going to do it twice as much as what my father Solomon did. So how do you like that now? And the northern ten tribes said, see ya. And so the northern ten tribes under King Jeroboam became their own official uh, nation. And as a nation, Jeroboam decided instead of worshiping God in Jerusalem, he would go back to the golden calf worship that is found in Exodus that the people automatically turned to when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And he set up two idols in the north and in the south of the nation so that way the people would not go into Jerusalem. But southern Judah officially, officially worshipped God. However, southern Judah was probably most like the United States. Most like the church today in that on paper they worshipped when indeed all they did were superficial things. So they would go to temple, they would, they would do the sacrifices when the time allotted. However, for southern Judah, they dabbled in the same idolatry that plagued the northern nation. Indeed, you could probably say we're very similar as the American church in that a lot of times we think, especially in the South, right, as long as I go to church, as long as I, I pray every once in a while, as long as I post on Facebook a verse, I'm doing okay. When in fact, really and truly, our hearts are in the wrong place. And so Isaiah enters a time in ministry in which Israel is a force to be reckoned with, though Assyria is on the rise. And we see here in this passage that Israel is not going to be the superpower that they thought they were, especially towards the end with the sacking of Samaria. And God is going to use an unlikely nation of Assyria, a pagan nation, 
to do his bidding. And it is at this time that we find the man Isaiah. And so Isaiah, we see here in the opening passage, he is in the temple, he is worshiping when we get to verse 1. And so when we look at this passage, we need to look at this passage and ask this question. Specifically, because we're talking about Isaiah's calling into ministry. How do we define success in the gospel? How do we define success in the gospel? A lot of times we probably take in this American idea that success means more, right? Success means more money. Success means more people. Success means more programs. Success means pastries, you know, in the morning or a coffee, uh, a coffee dispensary in the back, right? Right before service. We need to ask ourselves, how do we define success in the gospel? Because if we look at scripture here, we will see that here is Isaiah called to a people and God tells him that his success is going to look very different than perhaps how we view it. And so as we go through verses 1 through 3, actually 1 through 7, we see the purification of Isaiah. We see that Isaiah recognizes his own sin. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so notice right here it says, In the year that king Uzziah died, king Uzziah was the last major king of Israel. In fact, king Uzziah was one of the strongest kings. And after he died, we pretty much see a decline in Israel's uh, as a as a nation, as a superpower, if you will. And so really what's going on right here is Isaiah is being called at the beginning of the end. So essentially what verse 1 is saying is, this is the start of the downfall of Israel. Israel right here before this moment was indeed probably the most powerful nation in that area. But now it's the beginning of the end, right? I, I love the Lord of the Rings. My, my son is named after a character of, of Tolkien's literature. Uh, and, and one of my favorite uh, scenes, especially in the movies, but one of my favorite lines that Gandalf says, it's in The Return of the King. If you uh, have need something to read a little bit later, you can open up to Return of the King. And Gandalf, whenever he's looking out at Mordor, he's looking from Minas Tirith, which is the capital city of... of yeah, no, it's some, I got, I've already lost a lot of people with this, but I, I'm going to keep going with it. Uh, it's the capital city of Gondor. He's looking out at Mordor knowing that he is going to have to march against this army. Uh, this, uh, this army of Mordor that was so powerful. And he looks over and, and there's one of the hobbits sitting with him and he says, The time has come. It is the beginning of the end. And that's essentially what's going on right here. There should be dread filled in the heart of the Israelite when he's reading this because he knows that Uzziah is dead and there is nothing left to stop whatever the barbarians want to do later. He knows that from now on, Israel will fall. And it is at this time that Isaiah is called. Not necessarily what you call the most peachy of times to be called into ministry, but also one of the times that is probably the most needed. And so we see that during this time he receives a vision while he's worshiping in the temple of the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, the train of the robe filling the temple. 
verse 2, it says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And he called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so Isaiah is in this temple. He's seeing the vision of the glory of God. And he sees God's glory so much so that here are seraphim, uh, servants of God, angels. And before God, they're not holy enough to see him. They're not even holy enough to walk in the temple. And what do they do continuously? They praise the Lord for who he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here Isaiah receives a vision of God and notice what he is stricken with. He is not stricken with any of the characteristics of God's physical features. He is not stricken with what exactly does everything look at. Instead, he is stricken with the God's glory, especially as we see later down in terms and in comparing to Isaiah himself. In verse 4, it says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. God's very voice shook the temple. And so Isaiah sees all of this. He sees God's glory. He sees everything going around him. He sees how every creature inside is praising and worshiping the Lord. And notice what Isaiah notices about himself. This is verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees God's holiness and immediately is stricken by his own sinful nature. And so when we look at this, we must recognize when we go before the Lord, what is it that we notice about ourselves? What is it that we notice about ourselves? You see, probably many times... If we were to ask people about who we are, we would expect to hear the good things, right? You know, giving, charitable, awesome, ruggedly handsome. Um, (laughs) That's what my wife tells me, at least. Um, You know, right? That's, that's, That's what we kind of look for. That's what we kind of expect to hear. But here Isaiah does not get this. Instead, he recognizes the depravity of his own heart. And really, we need to reckon with this ourselves. Do you go before God and understand your own sinful nature? Indeed, probably, you know, going back to when we talked about the the American church before, probably most of us have heard people say, oh yeah, I'm okay with God, but they've never grappled with their own sin. They've never grappled with the idea of repentance. People say, you know, I go before God and and everything's okay, when in fact, the reality is that we are sinful people. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah says. You know, uh, a couple years ago, there was a a book called Heaven is for Real that was very popular. And I, I might be stepping on some toes, though, but that's okay. Y'all probably wore flip-flops. Um, so, uh, but Heaven's for Real came out, and it was a story about this kid who, who went before God in heaven and walked around and everything like that. And, and I always had people coming up to me and asking, do you think that's real? And I always answered no. 
and and people just went crazy, right? Because it was at Lifeway. I mean, you know, it was being sold at Lifeway. Nothing could be wrong if it's sold at Lifeway. However, during that time, the child never never grappled with his sin. Any time that you see a a man that goes before God in the Bible, goes before God, he always recognizes his own sin. He always recognizes the fact that he is unworthy. Take, for instance, Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses thought he was unworthy, one, because let's face it, the joker committed murder. But then two, he was also a stutterer. How in the world can I do this, God? I am not worthy. And you know what God said? I don't care. I'm going to use you anyway. Here is Isaiah. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And here we're going to see God say, that's okay. I can deal with that. I can work with that. It always amazes me looking at this, how people automatically think that they're supposed to be the next Billy Graham when it comes to ministry. But they fail to see that people, the people that God used throughout history have always been the very not obvious choice, you know, if you will. Take Moses, right? Take David, a shepherd boy, not even the oldest in his family. And look at Jesus, a carpenter's son, whose dad wasn't even his real dad, was the king of glory. The fact is, is that our sin hinders us from being in a right relationship with God. And because of that, it also hinders us in going forth with the gospel. So we must recognize that we are in need of repentance. But notice here that Isaiah doesn't just see his own need for repentance. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Notice he also recognizes the sin around him. And that's important here later whenever Isaiah is finally called by God. Because Isaiah does not just see his own sin. He sees the sin of his community. He sees the sin of his kinsmen. He sees the sin of his nation. And God eventually uses that to prick his own heart. To show that indeed there is a need and that he has been called to go. In verse 6 it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah now has this problem. He is a sinful man in the presence of a glorious God. And because of this, he is not worthy of being there. He needs his sin to be taken away. He needs something to happen to his sin. And notice that that when Isaiah calls out and confesses his sin, that a seraphim comes in and brings a tongue or brings with tongs a coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, your sin is now atoned for. Before we can be called, we must have our sin atoned for. Ladies and gentlemen, this is exactly what the gospel is here to do. Because you see, we have this same problem in our lives. That problem is sin. And God may making a way through Christ, came down and took on our sin so that way we can be in the same state as Isaiah, having our sin atoned for by the blood of Jesus. But we must repent. We must 
repent. We must come to a time in which we recognize that we are sinful man before an infinite, infinite God and repent. And only in that will we then be able to have our sin taken away. And so Isaiah sees this need and God immediately has the remedy for it. And now that Isaiah's sin is atoned for, now we see that Isaiah can be called. So now we're going to look at Isaiah and his call to follow. This is beginning in verse 8. And it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? So realize a while ago that Isaiah not only saw his own sin, but also saw the sin of his people. He saw the sin of his nation. And so now that his sins atoned for, now he is before the Lord, and the Lord says, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will go to this people that have this need? The same need that Isaiah did, that they were a people of unclean lips as well, and that they needed their lips atoned for just as much as Isaiah did. And the Lord comes now and says, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Notice Isaiah recognizes the need of his community. Ladies and gentlemen, we must recognize the need in our community. We are coming up on a, an election that might be, you know, contentious, you know, to say the least. I don't know if you've seen the political advertisements recently. But let's face it. Our need as a nation, our most important need as a nation, is not the election. It is that we are a people of unclean lips. The problem here in Wakulla County is not necessarily who's going to be District 3 County Commissioner. It is that we are a people of unclean lips. The problem with our dysfunctional families is not that Sally Sue and Billy Joe cannot get along. It's that we are a people of unclean lips. And when we recognize that we are a people of unclean lips, we must also recognize that it is us that are called to go. That it is us with the truth of the gospel are called to go. And so Isaiah here recognizes his sin and the sin of his people. And God says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah stands up and says, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. You know, those are, those are words right there, five words that are very hard to say. You know, a lot of us think that if we are called to go, that we're essentially going to be the next Billy Graham, right? Uh, when I was in seminary, we had a few of those people who thought that they would be, you know, in packed out stadiums, right? That, that when they spoke, people would listen. But as I found out, most of the time when I speak, people just want me to hush up. <laughs> That's right. Especially in the morning announcements when I'm talking about Florida. Am I right, Miss Lisa? <laughs> that, 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 that's right, that's right. <laughs> but let's face it. A lot of times when we think that we are called, we, when we are called, we're going to be successful. We are going to sell out stages, right? We're going to go to nations in which people will have to translate what we say into their language to understand. But here Isaiah is called. And God says to him in verse 9, and he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. 
keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and, the, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is Isaiah's calling. Isaiah's calling is to go, and no one will listen. Isaiah's call is to go, and no one will turn. Isaiah's call is to go and see this need, and yet no one will understand. And we see this, and we say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't success... Like having the doors just popping open, right? Having to have the CLC open up as well. People at homes, right? Because they cannot come in. Isn't that what success is? And I would say no. I would say that's a very capitalistic understanding that we have put onto the gospel. That it's a very American gospel. Because you see, when people are called to repent, people will turn away. David talked about this a couple weeks ago when he talked about, I think it was in Luke 13, uh, Jesus says that the gospel will divide father against mother, right? Or father, father and mother, father and son, daughter and, and mother, and then daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. The gospel will divide. Why? Because... We are sinful. We are a people of unclean lips. You see, we don't like to hear that message, that we must repent, that there is nothing that we can do on our own in order to gain salvation. And so going now into Israel, remember this is a, a nation that is officially pagan, and going and saying that you are a people of unclean lips, repent. It's not a message that is going to be very popular. I almost made a joke earlier about the title of this passage, or the message, because I, didn't, I don't do message titles. I just, I'm not good at them, so I just, you know, what's the title of this message? Isaiah 6. You know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really good at that. And I saw uh, that uh, the, the title that got placed on there was Gospel Success. And, and it, it kind of irked me a little bit because, um, it, it, I, I'm not making fun of you, Corey. Um, but uh, it kind of got me because I feel like, um, you know, it's one of those titles like you hear in Joel Osteen's sermons or one of these prosperity gospel uh, uh, teachers, preachers like Paula White and, and T.D. Jakes and all of them uh, that don't really grapple with sin and they look at this and they say, okay, we're going to look at the success and, 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 and you know, have these points that are going to fill, you know, fulfill everything that you're hoping for so that way you can be millionaires and drive around B&Ws and Teslas, you know, for each day of the week. When in fact we look at this passage and we see that God tells him that he is going to go and in his success no one will pay attention. Not a soul will pay attention. And so Isaiah has a question that probably all of us in hearing this statement would ask. He says, next verse in verse 11, Then I said, How long, O Lord? <laughs> o Lord, is this just for a season? <laughs> oh, please let this only last 2020, right? Am I right? You know, everything going on, let this just be this year. You know, the clocks we turned back last night, let's hope we just turned back the curse of 2020, am I right? And so now we can go forth and, and everything will be all, all glorious, you know, in our minds. Everything will be all peachy. Everything will be good. And so Isaiah asks, how long, O Lord? And then he says, 
until cities lie in waste without inhabitants and houses without people and land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. When will it end? It'll end at the end. This will happen for your entire ministry. No one will pay attention. And eventually, because the people refuse to repent, they will lose the land. You see, the people here in this passage, the people here at this time, thought that the promise of the land was an unconditional promise that because they were good Jews, you know, not even good Jews, because they were Jewish, that they would be able to hold the land for the, their entirety of, of all the generations that would come to pass. But they forgot that in the book of the law, the Lord told, told Moses that they had to keep the law, that they had to worship. And because of this, they would lose the land. You see, Isaiah is going into a, a ministry and going to a people that are going to be on difficult times. And that they won't listen to the answer that we have to say. So the question is then, how do we define gospel success? Would you sit here and say that Isaiah, because of this calling, was going to be a failure? I would argue absolutely not. He is going to do the very thing that God has told him to do. And so, how then do we define gospel success? We define gospel success with one key word. Faithfulness. You see, we as a people can only define success by faithfulness. You see, Isaiah is called basically to share the word of God until the end. Indeed, we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ crucified on a thief's cross for the very message that he gives. Of the twelve disciples, of the twelve apostles, eleven of them died by the sword. How do we define success as a people? Success can only be defined by faithfulness. Faithfulness to the very message that the Lord God has given us. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that we are to keep going on despite the circumstances that might arise around us. You know, we're going to a contentious election, as I mentioned before. And people always ask, in fact, I've got asked eight times this week, like, what, what are my thoughts about the election? Well, I'm not going to give you my thoughts about the election. You know, you don't have to worry about that. This isn't YouTube videos. But I will say this. We as the church cannot define success in whoever wins. If we define success based off whichever candidate wins the office, then we are selling the gospel short. Because you see, it is the gospel that calls us to repentance. Not an elected official, not even a pastor. It is the gospel that has the power to save not an amendment, not in a Supreme Court justice. 
It is the gospel that has the power to save. And so we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we as First Baptist Church, Crawfordville, Florida, must remember that despite what happens next week, that despite what happens the rest of 2020 or even 2021, that despite what happens within our families, that despite what happens within our community, it is the gospel that has the power to save, and therefore it is the gospel that we must take forth. Because let's face it, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, just as the Lord has a relationship with us, He also wants to have a relationship with everyone around us. That includes Republicans, that includes Democrats, that includes the Green Party. He wants to have a relationship with all. However, how will they know to come? It is only with us being faithful in sharing the gospel. And so is success then multitudes of people turning? Yes. Is success people turning away from the very message that we are giving? Yes. Why? Because we are called to go. And the Lord will do what he has, what he wants with the gospel. But we are still called to go. And so just as Isaiah here in this passage is called to go to a people who ultimately turn him away, we too are called to go into a world that is working against the very gospel that we are proclaiming. And so my question to you is this. Have you not shared the gospel because you believe you are unsuccessful? Because let me tell you this. What the gospel says is success is you sharing the gospel. You do not save anyone. It is the Holy Spirit of God that comes upon people that stirs their heart into repentance. What do you define as success? Let me hold to you faithfulness. Faithfulness is how we define success. Right now, it's said that in the first five years of a pastor's life, one in, or two out of ten pastors will remain in the ministry. Why? I would probably say it's because they define success by a very American capitalistic understanding of numerical growth and you know coffee shops and all this stuff. But let me put out to you that we are called to go despite the circumstances. We are called to go despite the circumstances. And though that this task that we are given might seem great, we understand that the God who's given us this task is greater. And not only greater, but sovereign, in control. Nothing comes out of his grasp. And so, let us repent of our sin so it doesn't hinder the gospel let us look into our church, in our community, and into our world and see the need that is for people to repent. And let us also, when we stand before the Lord, and he says, whom shall I send? Let us say, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, send me. We're going to go into a time of invitation. And so, as we go into this time, this is a time of reflection. 
let us repent for what holds us back from sharing the gospel. Let us repent for our failure to do so. And if you are in here and are not a believer and you're sitting here going, I am a man of unclean lips. How do I get this taken away from me? Let me hold out to you the gospel. That is that Jesus Christ came and lived that perfect life that we could never live. Died the death that was destined for us and rose from the grave, thus defeating death and defeating sin. Why? So that we could have life and have it eternally in complete relationship with God. So that we, we could stand before God completely atoned for to where we can have a conversation with him where he says, Who shall I send? And I say, Here am I, Lord, send me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. We, we praise you. We honor you. We thank you for allowing us to be here, Father, to uh, allow us to hear your word. And, and Father, especially at a time such as this, Lord, with disease, with unrest, Father, let us remember that it is not us and not our arguments that are going to be able to, to save this world, but it is the gospel. And Father, we have been called to go forth with it. Lord, we repent of where we've fallen. And Father, I pray that you would stir us into the wonderful work that you have so that way we can go and show our, our world, our community, Father, that you want to be in relationship with them. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.